Hello and welcome to Additive Insight, live from the show floor here in TCT Japan. I am joined by... Laura Griffiths, Deputy Group Editor. It's been an interesting couple of days, and as we sit here with only, what, 45 minutes of the day remaining, mm -hmm. the show floor is still packed. Hopefully you can hear us all over the rabble behind us. Uh, Laura, yep. do me a favour and tell me a little <laughs> bit about the music that's going to play in 45 minutes and your little fact about it. So yesterday when we tried to record this podcast the first time around, we were interrupted by um, a little rendition of Old Man Zion playing through the speakers. And it turns out that it's actually a thing in Japan that is played at the end, uh, basically when a shop closes or if a restaurant is closing, to pretty much usher people out of the shop. So apparently that applies to trade shows too. Pretty cool. Fun fact number one. Fun fact. Well, we're also going to be joined on this podcast by a special guest for a little history lesson. I'm hoping that this person will join us in a bit. Um, yesterday, we uh, big site. There are 12 shows here in total. It's a total of 12, over 12,000 visitors. I would imagine today's been way over that, but we'll see what the numbers are in the little press room later on. But Laura, come on, tell me what's interested you over the last couple of days on the show floor. Okay, so first of all, it's been interesting to see the number of big companies that we already know that are at this show today, and then also all of the kind of big Japanese manufacturers that are trying their hand at additive manufacturing at the minute. So I've been to see um, DMG Mori, who of course have um, been in with additive manufacturing for the last few years, and then people like Nikon too. So Nikon, who launched the additive manufacturing metals machine a couple of years back now, I think it was 2017 when they first announced it, it's called the Opticle Processing Machine. Now, I don't think that's going to be the final title for this machine. Um, it's not mega catchy, um, but it is going to be on the market in the next couple of months. So that is a bit of an update from last time when I believe you went to see the machine. Yeah, are we going with uh, Nikon or Nikon? I think it's Nikon. You think it's Nikon? Well, Nikon. I'm going to go with Nikon. You say Nikon, I'll say Nikon. Anyway, we uh, yeah, I took uh, Graham and Frank over to it uh, earlier on to check out what they what they thought of the machine. Uh, Graham was particularly impressed, specifically with the price of it and the size of it. Mm -hmm. It's quite difficult to get a metal machine in that kind of uh, size, so it's probably roughly only the size of, uh, I'd say it's the size of a smaller Fortis machine, That's maybe it. like the Stratus F1323 machine. Yeah. Um, and it just, I look at some of the parts in it, the parts are incredibly detailed, and only in stainless steel at the minute, I believe, but I think they are going to expand that with more materials at some point. What intrigued Frank Cooper of uh, the Birmingham School of Jewellery most about it was that the um, the ability to additively manufacture and um, laser polish. Mm -hmm. So what they do is they uh, additively manufacture it with the laser, I think it's like an LMD process, mm -hmm. uh, and then they can use uh, that same laser to then melt the surface of it so that it gives you a bit more of a shiny polished finish. Mm -hmm. um, did they say to you when they're going to release that so they, they did say it would be around spring this year, didn't give any exact dates for it, but um, yes, yeah, so it's springtime. And I also found it interesting, as you just mentioned, the affordability of it, when I asked about the kind of industries they were seeing that they think would actually really use this machine, but they even mentioned kind of like smaller creative businesses, and there were some little pieces that were kind of like little figurine pieces, really little tiny details on them, and I thought, I wouldn't have thought of that for such a kind of industrial looking machine, so that was quite interesting as well. I think. Uh, the figurine business is not to be sniffed at here in Japan. I mean, nope. we all know how every single shop that you go in is full of the figurines. And I went over to see Mimaki earlier, and I, we've said this before, but I am massively impressed by their machine. Mm -hmm. uh, the colours that they can get out of them, the ease of use, the ease of the support process removal. And one of the key selling points from it that I don't think a lot of people think about is that... Um, because the machine is basically their 2D machines just with a Z-axis, their service engineers who are trained on those 2D machines, which are, you know, there's thousands of them around the globe, 
uh, are all pretty much trained to do the 3D. So if you've got a problem with it, you can have a service engineer at your site within you know within a few hours, as opposed to sometimes it's a couple of days. Uh, again, I, I took Graham Raoul map to that one, and he was particularly impressed with the colours that they were achieving. And although their stand is full of really nice, like you know, miniatures of uh, computer game characters and anime characters, things like that. There's also a section of medical models, and the medical models thing. Uh, is where Graham would really see the growth. It's a bit UK related, but I took a bit of a tour around um, Imamaki um, site in the UK recently, and it was kind of a bit of a history between the 2D graphics printing all the way up to, to 3D printing. And it is amazing seeing how they've, as you said, it's pretty much the same technology, but transformed that vibrant colour technology all, all the way to 3D printing. It, it, it really is impressive. What was quite interesting about having Graham Troman's with me is that he was like suggesting ideas to them that they hadn't thought of it like uh, if they wanted to make the models uh, less brittle although they're not particularly brittle uh, but if they wanted to make them less brittle they could paint them with super glue and it gives them a really nice shine and then it's it's something that he tried in his early SLA days so it was funny going around these stands with Graham basically doing some free consultancy work for them. <laughs> uh, another one that I found is um, quite interesting around here is um, ceramic 3D printing. So you've got 3D Ceram, um, who are a European company, who are actually, um, well, a majority shareholder of their company now is, is Sinto, which is um, a Japanese company. Um, so they've only sold a couple of machines into Japan at the minute, but apparently um, ceramics, uh, and they've only sold a couple of machines into Japan at the minute, but apparently Japan is one of the biggest markets for industrial ceramics um, in the world. So that's really interesting. They're hoping to triple that number of machines this year. So, uh, And there's another um, company as well, which is apparently only launched um, at the end of last year. We'll have a on to see yet. I'm going to try and see you tomorrow. But um, SK Find, who are actually making their own ceramics printer in Japan as well. I also saw on a Muto stand, they, uh, I think they're reselling the Admatech machine over here as well. So obviously there is a uh, thirst for the ceramics. So come on, who else did you see today? Well, speaking of, of Muto, actually, um, they've got um, quite a few different machines on their stand, um, and one of them is a brand new debut for TCT Japan. Um, and it's um, it's kind of a, a miniature um, DLP machine. Again, really great um, great details on this. It's designed for um, the usual things at DLP, the jewelry, dental industries. Um, it's called the ML100. Um, that is available um, next month, I believe. Um, but yeah, just um, really, really highly detailed um, prints over there. And, They've got a couple of, of large DLP machines as well, but this was kind of one of the, the, the smaller range. Well, funny enough, with Muto, is uh, I was just you know, when I went on one of my wonders on my own when I uh, I left the whole team and lost my players player of the year <laughs> award already in January. Um, I was just walking down a subway station and noticed this big sign Muto, and I thought, I'm pretty sure they're exhibiting at TCT <laughs> Japan, and they had the uh, their own FDM printer, which has got two heads printed in there. They also had a big HP machine in the window, and they had uh, like a scanning booth or little like uh, mini me 3D prints. So, and they they got quite a big presence here. It's interesting to see that they've got metal technology mm -hmm. on their stand. They've got the ceramics. Uh, they've got the HP multi jet fusion. And they've also got their own technology. Mm -hmm. There aren't many companies that do that kind of thing around the world, I don't think. I can't think of too many off the top of my head no, that no. that resell other people's technology and got their own. Mm -hmm. They're an interesting company. But um, as there are many interesting companies here, who else are we have you, been, have you been to see? Um, so I've been to see um, another company called um, Torre. So they're not actually manufacturing their own um, printers, but they are actually a global 
um, chemical materials company. So they're actually offering additive manufacturing as a service. They've got loads of metal parts on, on their stand, but they're offering it, it, it's a full service, so basically incorporating the materials expertise with additive manufacturing. I think they're using some machines from EOS, um, and then also uh, the finishing side of it is, is, is really important to them as well. So um, they're really just um, providing all of that in, in this one package. But they also had um, a really cool um, example on their stand, which is um, a 3D printed rocket part. It's um, The part is a 3D printed pre-collimator, which is apparently a structure which shields uh, the measuring apparatus um, on a rocket from any stray light. So this is um, a research project from several Japanese universities, a couple of universities in the US um, with NASA. Um, so really, really cool project. And it's um, it's a great metal printed part. There's this um, really intricate honeycomb structure. Um, it, it's, it's just really great um, to, to have a look at. But um, it's just one of the interesting part examples they've got on the stand. They've got plenty of other kind of aerospace and um, industrial parts over there. So they seem to be doing um, a heck of a lot but as I said they're just they're using the machines they're not actually they're not actually making machines and I've seen a couple of companies um, like that as well at the show so um, along with another one um, Kai Wai um, they've been using metal 3D printing since about um, 2012 when they first installed an Arca machine they've also been using sand printing as well um, but they're originally um, a casting and, and prototyping company based here in Japan um, but they've recently expanded their capabilities with a concept laser um, X-Line 2000i you know the massive concept laser printer and apparently that's the, the first one of those in Japan as well, but they're also offering it as, as a service too. What I find things quite interesting about the technology here is how uh, engineer over to the stand yesterday, a bioengineer, Anora, uh, and she said to us that, you know, she's based in the US, and, uh, sorry, she's from the US and she's based here in Japan now. And she said the one thing that they're famous for, the Japanese, is they research the heck out of things is what she described. <laughs> but we went over to the, uh, there's a stand over there, which is purely research stand, and we saw... Um, Know, these amazing color changing mm -hmm. um, catheter products that they were using hydrogels to yeah. manufacture with and then we saw this machine that's um, vulcanized rubber 3d printing which mm -hmm. is something that's not achievable by anyone else I did ask Frank Cooper what's the point of vulcanized rubber and he said well it's really important for castings and seals and things like that and, and it's the fact that it's vulcanized is because it's uh, heated up to a really high temperature and therefore it's more durable and I feel like the industry is over here a lot of the technologies are aimed at research institutions, yeah, definitely. but that doesn't necessarily mean that the industry is slowing down. It's just that it'll be developed, 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 and then all of a sudden one day it'll be huge and they'll know how to use it everywhere. Mm -hmm. So anyone else that you could care to mention? Well, just on to um, universities and research institutes, because as you said, there's a lot of them on, on the show floor here. Um, and one of them that I went to go see was the Joining and Welding Research Institute at Osaka University. So they've developed this um, blue light 3D printing technology, which um, as you probably know, it, it processes materials that are quite difficult to process with uh, normal infrared um, lasers. So they've shown some really um, good examples. I've, I've, just really, really tiny little like sort of lattice pieces um, 3D printed in copper, but they're also saying they can potentially use that for other difficult to process materials um, like gold as well. And I feel like I've seen more of kind of these alternative um, laser technologies recently, so it's interesting to see university working on that. It is just a research printer at the moment that they're not looking to, to retail that anytime soon, but as you've just said, it's the kind of stuff where I'm sure it'll just build and build and it'll be something really amazing in a couple of years' time. That stands that company that you mentioned, the Blue Light Laser, is also near the introducing stage. I just walked past it before and Autodesk were on stage and the whole thing was packed out. And that brings me on to like the conference yesterday. I was in on the conference yesterday morning. It's, it was Global Perspectives on AM, so we had uh, Stuart Lane from Sesmo, we had David Burns, 
and Mr. Sawakoshi from the Japanese 3D Printing Manufacturers Association. Um, and what was really interesting, and I hosted a panel session after that, was the way that it's, it's perceived in the different places. David Burns was very much saying that uh, in the US they went really gung-ho into yeah. buying 3D printers. Um, and Stuart Lane of Sesamo was saying that in Europe they were solely focused on the productionization. And the, the theory was here that, that it's, the Japanese were slightly behind on that regard. But as we've discussed, if they're researching projects and things like that, Dave Burns actually suggested that maybe because um, because they do have the traditional infrastructure manufacturing mm -hmm. here, uh, that it'll be easier to implement the, specifically the metal technologies into that workflow, okay. uh, which they found difficult in the US because you know they stripped all that manufacturing back. Um, and but the Mr. Sawakoshi's belief is that they are behind the curve in many of the aspects. A lot of the things that I see here are. Uh, rapid prototyping and a lot of the traditional technologies that have come out of Japan are uh, rapid prototyping. Have you got that feeling from the show floor that it's more geared towards prototyping or can you see that move to manufacturing? Um, I, well, I've seen a, a lot of industrial um, final parts here today, especially with, with, with the metals technologies. I mean, I suppose they are, they're coming from people um, like Tori that I guess have adopted other technologies and are just kind of implementing them really well. But I think that's because they've, they've, they've also got the background in the material science, so they've got the background in the machining technologies as well. So they kind of have got the other parts of the process chain that maybe other people haven't perfected too. So that's been kind of interesting to hear. And just because you mentioned um, Dave Burns then as well, I, I spoke to him earlier today and he was kind of talking about the same thing, just how um, it's interesting that, that Japan is supposed to be kind of a bit risk averse when it comes to things like this. but. When you look at the numbers, like we, we, me and you were discussing the, the Wallace report earlier today, and it, Japan has actually got the, the third largest install base of industrial 3D printers in the world. And how can those two things add up? You know, people are obviously adopting the technology, so maybe that just means more that, that there's not as many machines being developed here, but it is being applied. Well, it's interesting you say that as well because one of the theories that came out of this show a year ago, when it was uh, before it was TCT Japan, was that. Uh, the Japanese are actually using the technology a great deal. They're just more averse to talking about it. So they're more averse to sharing case studies and we don't see it as much. Uh, they, there's perhaps the threat of competition or mm -hmm. maybe it's just they don't like to show off uh, the tech things that they're doing. Um, everybody seems to believe that the likes of Toyota and the likes of um, Honda, they've all got 3D printing technologies in-house. We're just not sure how far along it is. Um, I think that is a good segue to bring in our guest uh, for a little bit of a history lesson about what was going on uh, before in 3D printing. So get, let me uh, go and get our special guest. Oh, look. So, Isn't this exciting? It is. <laughs> I'd like our special guest to uh, introduce himself, please. I am, I'm Graham Tromans. All right, Graham. So uh, you've, uh, we've walked around the show floor with you today and you've shown me lots of things, but one of the interesting stories I'd like you to tell everybody is what it was like 20 years ago when you came here to Japan. Well, 20 years ago, uh, it's 1996 when well, I came. Um, and I got the feeling that, the, that they were using quite a few machines. There was a lot of resin machines, CMEC, DMEC, Tajin Seiki, and there was Kira, which was the, the paper machine, very similar to what MCOR do now. Uh, and they were doing some, some, some good work with it. But what's really surprised me now is walking around here today is that I don't see any resin machines. I don't see these big manufacturers here anymore. Um, and and I, 
it's really, really surprised me. And I'm thinking, well, well, why is that? Is that because um, the development and everything in 1996, there was a lot of patent issues. So that would have maybe controlled what they were doing and as far as selling into Europe and, you know, America, places like that. But um, so it's been really surprising. Was it 20 years ago, was it more like the automotive companies that were using it? Were they doing it the oh, same yeah. way you were doing at Land Rover? Yeah, things like Mitsubishi, Mitsubishi trucks. Um, we went to, to Toyota, we did the Mitsubishi. We did quite a few. Um, of, um, some of the, like the, 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 the small suppliers to the motor industry as well. And they all seemed to be using it. But I think there was, there was one or two thinking that they were using it actually more than they, than they were. You know, the figures that they were giving us as far as use was concerned, they weren't really stacking up, you know, so. Um, but I don't know, I mean, I, at the time I thought that, I'd, I'd been to the States for the, for the, for the government um, probably two, three years before to look at what their state of the industry was to compare with the UK. And I felt that we were, although they had it a few more years than us, I felt that we were, we were up there, we were with them in a lot of cases, and in some cases we were in front. Uh, and I was surprised when we came here, what I was seeing, I'm thinking, well, they're not that far behind. They really ain't that far behind. But I'm unsure now. I'm unsure now in that period of, what, 20 years or so, just over. Um, what, why is it? Why has it not progressed like we've progressed? Do you think um, it's anything to do with, we've mentioned that it, Dave Byrne suggested that maybe the culture's a little bit risk averse here and they're a bit scared to adopt the, like specifically the metal technologies? It could be, yeah. There's a very good chance it could be something like that. You know, they have a lot of, um, they have a lot of outlets for, like for the, for supplying prototype parts and things like that for, um, the automotive industry and for aerospace industry in traditional traditional ways here. So why why do they really need to take a risk? You know? They're not being pushed to take that risk. And while you've been here, is there anything that's been that's impressed you? We went to see the Nikon Nikon machine. What did you think of that? Yeah I thought that was a great machine. I think there's a lot of potential for that machine. I think it's good now. Uh, and what I liked about it was was the openness of the guy we were talking to. You know, the fact that you could build the part and you could use the laser to improve the surface of the part. But he wasn't he wasn't trying to bullshit in any way and say, well, this is what it comes out like. And it was looked like a really machine part. You know, he was, he was showing us the truth, you know, showing us the parts as they came out of the machine. I think the machine looks 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 good. I mean, there's a lot of processes in there, like finishing and drilling, and you can do that all at the same time. So, yeah, I think that's a nice machine. And the the, the what is it, the DMG there? The, you know, that's a nice one, nice hybrid machine. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, hybrid machines are going to be the thing I think in the future. You know, we, you know, the the ability to build a part and then to to machine it at the same time and the part comes out finished. You know, we all thought at one time that you can never do that. Obviously you can. You know, you've got Matsura that does that as well. I don't think they're here. I haven't seen them in Matsura. I'm, I'm not sure. 
somewhere. Maybe I haven't yeah. walked around far enough. And maybe we haven't. <laughs> but it's the same sort of thing. So I think then that's that's just the way it is, you know. Okay. We'll see how they go. You know, it'd be interesting to see now um, the fact that you've got a lot of the the, the, the manufacturers like like Stratasys and Carbon and people EOS and people like that. Maybe that's just going to inspire them a little bit to say, oh, well, you know. The future is here, finally. Well, let's hope so. Thank you very much, Graham. No Brilliant. Thank you. Cheers. That was the esteemed Graham Tromans and his opinions on the uh, manufacturing market here in Japan. Uh, I actually, we brought that Graham onto the podcast because I kind of had that conversation with him earlier and it inspired me to like do a little bit of research about the history of 3D printing in Japan and... Uh, I feel a little bit ashamed to say this, Laura, but uh, I hadn't realised that there was a guy called Hideo Kodama, who in 1981 had uh, invented uh, at the university, at the Nagoya Municipal Industrial Research Institute, he'd invented a patent for 3D printing that was three years before Chuckles' patents for 3D printing, and um, Graham tells me that that got really caught up in the Japanese patent process and never never materialized. And by the time that it got through it, we were already, 3D systems were already way down the line of industrialization. So that's kind of like the lost process of 3D oh, printing, wow. amazingly. I think that's good fact number two for the podcast. <laughs> it's good fact number two. And Graham mentioned a couple of the companies there, um, the likes of CMET. Uh, CMET had a stereolithography machine here in Japan that they had sales on in 1988. By 1992, Terry Waller's report suggested that the solid object ultraviolet laser plotter or snappier soup uh, printer had sold 56 machines and not just in Japan they had one uh, with the Dornier Deutsche Aerospace Company uh, and then there was another company called Tijan Seiki which Graham mentioned they were acquired by CMET in 2001 and they still manufacture printers now uh, there was DMEC uh, DMEC was a, a 3D printer that was created by the Jap Japan Japan Synthetic Rubber Corporation alongside, would you believe it, Sony. Wow. So Sony released a 3D printer then. There was Kira, which was the uh, printer Graham mentioned that was a bit like the long process where it was paper. Uh, and that said it was the first um, 3D printer to use plain office paper. Uh, on that link to the website, on the article on the website, there is the most amazing <laughs> website I have ever discovered in a little bit of research. It's got all of these little like um, captions of bizarre 90, mid-90s videos of 3D printers. You, it looks like something from tomorrow's world. Uh, and the website looks like something from yesterday's world. But, it's very Windows 95. I mean, I wasn't aware, Laura. I don't know how aware you were of how influential the Japanese market was early doors in the 90s. Were you aware of it? I, I wasn't at all. And it, it, it's interesting to, to hear that because it does make you wonder even more like what what has happened to, to slow the industry? If it is in fact behind, as Graham was just talking about, then what what has happened to kind of slow that down when they seem to be leaders originally before everybody else? What's certain is that PC Japan has been a huge success. It's, I mean, as I say, we've only got 20 odd minutes remaining and there are still lots of people milling around. Um, is there anything else that you want to see tomorrow or is there anything else you want to mention that you've seen today, Laura? Well, do you know what? I was really looking forward to, to coming to this show anyway because I'd, I'd, I'd never been to Japan and, you know, I, I kind of knew these facts about the industry in terms of like install base and things. I was, I was really interested to see that. Not just interested in the fact that we're sitting in the hotel next to the big Gundam statue, but um, what, has, what I found to be the most interesting, to be honest, is that 
we go to a lot of trade shows and every single one you go to you kind of see the same application samples from a lot of companies it's been really cool to come here and see different applications from Japanese companies so um, I mean just on the carbon stands they've got a few really nice pieces um, one of one of which is um, just kind of watch um, watch straps and um, flexible materials as we know carbon's all about the, these um, really um, complex materials um, so yeah just just really nice exam examples there and even an example of um, like a, a 3d printed um, like sort of rubbery flexible and um, like pollution mask as well things like that so it's been really That'll go down very well over here yes yeah, so it's been interesting to, to see things um, like that as well um, and also just because we have been we've been quite nerdy this week some of the things we've wanted to look at whilst there in Tokyo and as you mentioned before the whole figurines thing that the, the game and things been really big Another company, um, Polymaker and Materials Company, um, have got a really cool application from a company called Infinite Dimensions, um, who are using the Polish Move um, finishing to make these really cool um, game parts. So basically, um, people that play these RPG like board games, like I guess Dungeons and Dragons, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you Warhammer. Warhammer, all of those, the nerdier of the two of us. Um, so you go online, you download the, the STL file for this, and you can print out all these different board game bits, and just they're just really, really cool. They look, they look awesome, and I think it's been nice to see more things like that, which I wouldn't have necessarily seen at some of the other shows that we go to. There's also this really cool stand that we went over to yesterday, uh, and neither of us could figure out whether the item on there, which is this like huge chandelier of feathers, yes. was 3D printed or not. Fortunately, we're not in the because Frank Cooper or Graham Jonas, neither of us, neither of them could figure out what oh, was 3D printed. Graham thinks it might better. be. I think that's the Japanese Association of Automotive Interior Designers, right. and there's lots of really like nice, cool yeah. parts on that. So I think that piece is called Fluff. Am I right? right? Yeah. yeah. So it kind of it kind of looks like a big a big dandelion, really, doesn't yeah. it? So like it's 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 really nice. And then they've got a few other things as well, showing all these little uh, miniature figurines holding this. It's like one. One key, one kilogram. Kilo, yeah, yeah. It's, um, holding just this um, this kind of glass piece, and then um, of course a 3D printed Godzilla as well, because why not? Um, just various other bits on there. Oh, and also some hipster burgers too. Hipster builder burger. It's pretty cool as well. Um, so yeah, we're just seeing some really interesting stuff, and looking forward to tomorrow. You know, when we were over there, uh, like afraid to touch it because it does say do not touch on it. Uh, Graham just went over there, grabbed a bit of it, and went. It is definitely plastic, so you know, maybe. He's Graham Trollman's. He's allowed to. <laughs> you can get away with that kind of thing. We need another thirty years before we can start getting away with that. Anyway, I think that concludes this week's podcast. We better get off air before the old lang syne starts and before the uh, exhibitor party, which is this evening, which Laura hasn't experienced, and it's like a uh, like a really amazing. Uh, traditional Japanese thing to do where they gather all the people from around the world and each table each country has its own table and they bring some food delicacies and some drink from that ah. country and then they do this big ceremonial thing with sake drums it's a really nice authentic Japanese experience to look forward to this evening Great. thank you very much for listening uh, we will return at a later date with another episode of Additive Insight thank bye you. for now